391, Psalm 19. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we would really just encourage you to take one of ours. We have plenty of Bibles. We, we want to give them away. We want you to have access to the Word of God. Uh, and if you leave here this morning with one, we're not going to look at you suspiciously if you walk out the door like you're stealing something. We recognize this is our gift to you. So please do uh, not only read from one now, but also take one if you don't have it. Uh, knowing God is, is the most important pursuit of our lives. Jesus himself put it this way in John 17. He says, this is eternal life. Eternal life. To know you, Father, the one true God, and to know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And, and so I mentioned last week that the old saints, the saints of old used to say that we can hear from God, we can kind of get to know God through two different books. God's big book and God's little book. God's big book being the creation around us. God's the nature that surrounds us. When we walk outside these doors, we see God speaking through nature, telling us about his nature. Speaking through creation, telling us about the character of the creator. And we looked at that last week. This week, we're going to be looking at God's little book, his written word, the revelation he's made of himself and what he wants to say to us. So let's read together in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much uh, fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Pray with me if you would. Father, we trust you this morning to use your word to work, to chisel, to hammer on our hearts so it will produce change in our lives. And so we trust this time to you and ask that you would work, Holy Spirit, to change us. In your name we pray. Amen. So the Bible was written by God through the pens of, of nomads, fig farmers, kings, prophets, bureaucrats, fishermen, and philosophers. Over 40 authors, over a span of 40 generations, written in all kinds of ways, story form, law, prophecies, apocalyptic literature, wisdom literature, poetry, parables, all kinds of ways and means. I was thinking this last week about what do we have today that reminds us of the Bible? What, what equivalent? The, the closest thing I could think of, and this is an imperfect analogy to be sure, are magazines. And I realize that, that magazines have probably gone the way of newspaper, checkbooks, paper itself. It's going obsolete. Uh, although I, I know you've seen them, though, magazines, right? In fact, how many of you at one point in your life had a, had a season where you received magazines? Maybe you got magazines to your house, a certain magazine every week, or you bought a magazine regularly. Okay? So a number of you. I don't know why you guys are embarrassed. But I brought a number of them with me here today. Uh, the, the one I grew up getting was uh, Sports Illustrated right here. And this was, this was the one I got to my house, and I still got it until I moved here to uh, Grand Cayman, where I have to buy everything at the store. 
Um, and then, of course, in our household, we have uh, gluten-free and more. Uh, if you know us, you know that this is a regular for our household. We eat nothing but gluten-free foods. So this, this, this kind of goes around our house as well and produces all kinds of delicious or at least edible food. So um, there's that. Now, the reason I think the Bible's a little bit like mag- a magazine is this. That there are multiple authors of varying generations using all kinds of of formats, but around the same basic themes. So like sports, running, gluten-free food, right? When you thumb through a magazine, it's sometimes hard to see how it all fits together because of that. You have your editorial articles towards the beginning. You have your picture gallery, the he said, she said, the opinion polls, the little tests they give uh, women to know if the guy's really interested in you and that sort of thing. You have uh, a thoughtful, big-picture article. And you also have like a a 10-page advertisement about construction somewhere in the middle. And even sometimes you have two pages of like perfume or cologne, which I don't know what that's for. But you have multiple formats, multiple authors, people writing of varying generations. And you wonder when you read a magazine, it just seems sort of random. How does it all fit together? That's a little bit like when you read the Bible. So what people try to do in history, scholars, theologians, people much smarter than myself, is categorize the Bible. And it done so in a number of different ways. Some people try to categorize the Bible by generation. And so a lot of times we'll get what's called a chronological Bible or a chronological Bible study. Reading the Bible according to the time it was written. And that's one way to read it. People also categorize the Bible according to topic. And so in the back of some Bibles, you'll see what's called a concordance. It has various topics you can look up. Or you see these Bible promise books, which, are, uh, which categorize God's promises according to topic. Another way people categorize the Bible is by genre, the type of literature it is. And so I mentioned we have law, prophecy, story or narrative, parable, all kinds of different ways, apocalyptic and prophetic literature, all kinds of ways to categorize the Bible to help people see how it all fits together. David, he, he categorizes the Bible in a very unique way here in these verses that we read this morning. He categorizes the Bible by the good that it produces and those who read it and respond to it. Right? And, and by the way, David's going to use all kinds of words for the Word of God. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules, all referring to the Bible. But he says it produces life. Reviving the soul, we read there, right? Look at your Bible here. It produces wisdom. It makes the wise simple. It produces joy, rejoicing the heart. It produces sight, enlightening the eyes. Produces endurance, enduring forever. It produces change, righteous altogether. So here's what I want you to hear in a nutshell this morning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Here's the message in a nutshell. Read the Bible to receive all the good God wants to produce in your life. Read the Bible to receive all the good that God wants to produce in your life. There is so much, as we see here in Psalm 19. And my goal this morning is twofold. To help us see the good that God produces through his word. And help us also get the good, access the good that God wants to give us through his word. Alright, so see the good, get the good. That's my goal this morning, to help us in that way. So number one, we see, we, we're encouraged to read the Bible for life. Look at that in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The Hebrew understanding of a soul is that eternal part of the person. That, that which will live on forever, wherever. 
whether it be in the good place or the bad place. Your, your soul, the Bible teaches, will live on forever. And, and the Word of God is the mechanism, the means God uses to bring life to your soul. So Romans 10.17 says that faith, faith in Jesus, comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of Christ. Right? So the way that you develop faith, that faith is quickened is through the Word of God as the Holy Spirit uses it. So you may have come to faith, you might say, you know, but I came to faith, Ryan, through someone who showed Jesus' love for me. And they showed that in their lives. You see, I came to faith uh, when singing worship and the Holy Spirit sort of overcame me. And in both of those cases, the only way we know that this love is Jesus' love is because the Bible explains it. It says that everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The only way we would know the Holy Spirit who overwhelms us, overcomes our, our life, is by knowing who the Holy Spirit is. That it's God who wants to indwell, live inside of us. And so we need the Word of God to actually have faith in Jesus and have eternal life, life to our soul. And it's interesting that David says the Bible doesn't just give life, it resuscitates life, right? It takes, it takes a life that was and it breathes life into it. It revives the soul, revives, relifens it. These verses, all of these verses, verses 7 through 11, are, are, are pretty straightforward about God's Word. Okay, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time, because they're straightforward, explaining it verse by verse. Instead, I want to draw out David's word categories, right? What we're saying here is that the word of God produces certain categories of good in those who read and respond to it, right? Those categories, life, wisdom, joy, sight, endurance, and change. I want to spend time on those because I want to help you see each good and get equipped to receive all the good that God has to give you. So the first good here is life. God wants to give you life through his word. And to see life produced in us through God's word, I want to welcome my friend Azil Olofsson. is going to come up. And she is going to share how she herself has received life from something she's read in God's word. Good morning. Uh, a verse that I really like is from Philippians 2, verse 13. Uh, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has used this verse to give me new life. Thanks, Azil. So Azil great, graciously responded this week and said, this is a verse that's been very important to me, and I found that it has reignited life in me. And so she is living proof of God's promise coming true, that he revives people through his word. Now, we've seen life, because we've seen living, breathing proof of it here. How can we personally get life when responding to God's word? How can we access that life when we ourselves read something like Philippians 2.13? This is where equipping becomes important. How to read the Bible becomes important. And there are two very basic ways. There's lots of little subcategories we could add to this. But there's two very basic ways to approach God's Word, to read God's Word. One is to study it, and the other is to meditate on it. Okay? Study it and meditate. Both are important. Studying it is, is making observations. Asking the who, what, when, where, why. Understanding the context. Having a pen handy to make notes in your Bible or in a notebook. And having done all that, applying it practically to life. And, and it takes hard labor until it becomes habit to study God's Word. And back in the back, I have a little worksheet that can remind you of some of those tips I just gave you. 
There's, there's a, a number of worksheets in the back. I made a bunch of copies of them just to remind you of what I've just said. No time to go over it now. That's studying God's Word. Meditation's a little bit different. It sounds very Eastern, maybe very yoga or Zen-like, but it's actually quite biblical meditation is. It, I like to think of meditation as mind-chewing for heart-digesting. Mind-chewing for high digestion. Sometimes when you find a verse that really, you think, man, this really stands out to me, a verse or two or a, or a paragraph of Scripture, it's good to just stop, read it over and over again. Let it, let it turn over in your mind until it takes possession of your heart, until you, until you digest it, to, to, and it nourishes your soul. And that's what it means to meditate. You start to make it into a prayer, your day's credo, even a life mission before God. So both of these things are important when we approach God's Word. To study it, to do the hard work of studying, and take the time to really meditate on it. Let it sink in. Pray through it. I asked Azil earlier if she's a Bible scholar. Uh, she confirmed that she is not. So how does someone like her, she hasn't got, gone to seminary, how does someone like her get life from God's Word? She studies it. We study God's Word. So it's life-giving to know, Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's life-giving to know that whatever happens in my life, even the stuff out of my control, it is God who is working in me. But we can get even more life from these words by just having a pen in our hands when we read the Bible. Having a pen or pencil in hand when we read the Bible. And by the way, God is not displeased with that. He's not upset if you mark up your Bible as if in and of itself is something holy. The pages are something to be treasured in and of themselves. He loves for us to have a pen in hand so we can see the connections in the Bible. In fact, there's a great Bible out called the uh, ESV Journaling Bible. And one of the things it has in there in this Bible, and you can get this on Amazon or it's a book nook, is it's got wide margins so you can make notes all over the Bible. Keep thoughts and prayers and responses to God's Word as well. So it's always good to have a pen handy when reading the Word of God. That's what I did when I read the, this verse, uh, as I had a pen handy. And if you read Paul's short letter to Philippians, you'll see why. Because there's one word that repeats itself 12 times in Paul's short letter. And that is the word joy or rejoice. I know this because I had a pen ready. I circled every time one of these words appeared. And you can see it up here on the screen. I've used a a red pen just so you can see also a highlighter. I'm not trying to butcher up this Bible. I'm trying to to, to see for myself that there's a theme going on here through God's Word. There's a lot of, and what I notice is there's a lot of joy in knowing Jesus. There's There's joy in serving with others who knows Jesus. There's joy in knowing that the good news about Jesus is being spread. There's joy in knowing that people are growing in Jesus. These are the themes of Philippians because joy is the main theme of Philippians. And it just starts to sound like a lot of joy, joy for us who know Jesus. So what's in it for God then? There's only one time that God's joy, that his pleasure is spoken of in Philippians. That's Philippians 2.13, right? It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does that tell me? That God's pleasure and my joy are interconnected. God's good pleasure is the work he is doing in us. In other words, God gets maximum joy for doing us maximum good. He loves it. Think about how important that is, that God doesn't give up working in us, but not just that, that work that he does in us isn't tedious. It's not frustrating to him. It's not a, a, a sort of joyless labor. It is his delight to work in us. 
And that should bring us great pleasure and enliven our soul. That God isn't just good to us. He takes great joy in being good to us and working good in us. How did I notice that? By starting with a pen, circling some words, and seeing that his, his joy and our joy are intimately connected. So study God's word. Uh, we can also read the Bible not only for life, but for wisdom. Look at verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So to see wisdom produced in us through the word of God, I want to welcome my friend Ken Helms forward, who has himself gotten a little more wise from something he's read in God's word. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Talking about uh, your paperless going uh, <laughs> being more popular. Uh, I'd like to share Matthew uh, verse, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 7, verse 24 and 27. Jesus said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then the rain fell, and then the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain came, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Uh, God used this verse so I can live my, wi- my life more wisely. I like to embellish cool. about, just a little bit briefly about cool. how, how, why this became very important to me. Um, I've been in construction my whole adult life, and this uh, verse focuses on a construction, uh, a found- good foundation, and building, whether it be a house or your life. Uh, I find if you do your research, uh, you gather information, and uh, you do the right thing, you'll have a good, solid foundation. Being in construction for as long as I have, 40 years, you can see the results of that. So Ken shared how the more he thought, when we were talking about this earlier, and this verse helped him with wisdom, how the more he he chewed on the word, the more he thought about it, the more it began to make sense to him. And, and this is a good opportunity to try to meditate on God's word for this one. Remember, meditation is mind chewing for heart digesting. And even this week, I, I followed Ken's cue and I read these four verses over and over again. I chewed on them until I thought I heard what the Holy Spirit wanted me to hear. And specifically, it was about the inevitability of storms. Right? Jesus says it pretty matter-of-factly here. The rain fell, the floods came, the wind blew, and it beat the house. He says it twice. It's just, it's just is. It's, it reminded me that knowing Jesus isn't the golden ticket into prosperity, away from the storms. In fact, I would argue that, that knowing Jesus and following him means there are probably going to be more storms in your life. Ken shared with me earlier that the first time he heard these verses sounded a little bit odd because sand, when, when compacted, and resting untouched over time actually forms a pretty dense and stable base. But upon review, we, we remembered that what sand actually stays untouched by the elements, right? Storms are inevitable. And so they form a, 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 a poor base. Such is life when we don't found our life and our existence upon the word of God. And this was wisdom for me. Trust and obey Jesus now because that's all that's going to be left when the storm comes. Little life philosophies we live by, life hacks, healthy habits, whatever works is good until whatever works stops working. Until everything is stripped away. And then what's left? 
part of my job, part of my calling, my responsibility before God is to be there for people and listen to people who, who have been stripped of the all in their life, whether it be a, a husband, a child, whether it be their health, their career, or, or just that, that master plan that they had for their life. It's all of a sudden gone. One woman I met with some time ago whose uh, husband decided to leave her said, I never really knew what it meant to follow Jesus. Or, sorry, I never really knew what it meant for Jesus to be my all until all I had was Jesus. And it struck me, though, because she knew Jesus, because she had been listening and obeying his word, she, she came to me, a brother in Christ. She, she got support of others. She stayed faithful to God. She kept walking step by step, trusting him even in the midst of the pain because she had heard what Jesus said and built her life upon it. Wise is the man who prepares for an inevitable day by trusting and obeying Jesus' words now. So there's wisdom in reading the Bible. In reading the Bible, you can also find joy. Read the Bible for joy. Verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And to see joy produced in a, in a real life through God's word, I'm going to invite forward Kirsten Griffith, who has reignited her joy often from something she has read in God's word. Thanks, Kirsten. I'd like to share Joshua 1 verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God has used these words to produce joy in me. It's a joy from knowing that his love and plans for each of us is, are great, is greater than we can comprehend and that he's always going to look out for each and every one of us. Thank you, Kirsten. There is great joy in knowing God is not only got a plan, but he's with us always. He's not leaving us. He's not forsake us. Probably the most important principle in studying the Bible, getting joy in this case when reading the Bible, uh, is context, understanding the context. What, what are the most important rules in real estate? Rule one, two, and three in investing in real estate. You know what it is? Location, location, location. Rule number one, two, and three when studying the Bible Context, context, context. Where is this verse located? What are the other verses around it? That's how you figure out how to understand and apply a verse to your life. And we can do that here, interestingly, with Joshua 1. You can read up. I always talk about reading up and reading down. Reading the context around a verse. If we read up from Joshua 1, we would notice that this is the third time in nine verses that God has told Joshua, be strong. Be courageous. And then three times he supplies the reasons why. I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Again, I will be with you. You see up on the screen here. Sometimes I think we think, as Christians, especially us men, we think it's, it's childlike, it's a little embarrassing, it's a little weak to ask for reassurance. And yet here's maybe the greatest military commander in Jewish history, Joshua, who is frightened who needs to hear three times, be strong, be courageous. I will be with you, I will be with you, I will be with you. And if you read up even further to the book prior to Joshua, at the end of Deuteronomy, it's the book right before Joshua, Joshua's mentor, Moses, speaks almost the exact same words to Joshua before dying. It'll be up here on the screen. This is from Deuteronomy 31. Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. 
They'll just be strong and courageous. And you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Do you imagine hearing the words not only of God, but of your, your mentor, this man you spent decades with, taught you about Jesus, coming through again and again. Maybe some of you here, like Joshua, have yet to risk much for God. But you're on the cusp of that kind of opportunity, to take a faith risk for God. You find yourself on a sort of faith precipice to step out into that gap and trust God. But you've yet to have much faith experience upon which to draw. You have yet to see how God can be faithful to you by stepping out into something risky. And that's why it's so important to remember there are Moseses around you. There are Moseses sitting nearby you. And there are people who've preceded you, who've experienced God's faithfulness while trusting him against all odds. And that, that, is, that is, brings us joy, right? To know that there are people around us we can, we can lean on to remember that God is with you. He will never forsake you. To remember that there are millions of other Christians who've lived, who've experienced that themselves. And it's the same God who will be with you and not forsake you today. How do we get there? By studying. By reading the context. It brings even more joy to reading the Bible. Also read the Bible to see. Verse 8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right, enlightening the eyes. As a witness to this promise, I'm going to invite forward my friend Mark Williams, who had a couple verses that caused him to view his life and himself differently. Thanks, Mark. I have Ephesians 2, 8 to 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. And this verse for me is the freedom we don't deserve. It's the hug from a dad after we've just smashed a ball through that glass window. It's a well done, here's an ice cream when you've just failed your exam. It's love, love in its purest form. It's who God is, and because of what he did for me, it's who I am. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Mark could share those, those words, his sort of interpretation of those verses, because he, he meditated on them. He considered them, he chewed on them, and they... they they brought him a different perspective on life. Totally different view. Is that fair to say, Mark? So we would do well to do, also, to do this also, to meditate on these verses. And during my university days, these two verses were critical for my life. For a long time, I used to view religion as this kind of partnership, an equal partnership. God does his part, and then I do mine. And for me, that produced in me a sense of entitlement. God, I'm doing all these right things, or a number of right things, so I deserve to have my prayers answered. I deserve for my life to be blessed in X, Y, and Z ways. Right? Get all the good stuff. And that just sort of grew in my heart. But even in these verses, it says, yeah, I'm saved by grace. I deserve love of God displayed towards me. But, but then I think to myself, at least I got to choose salvation. Right? It, it was wholly my decision to trust Jesus, until I mentally chewed on this little part of this verse that says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What does this and it refer to? It refers to faith. Faith which connects us to God. Faith which I always thought was just my decision, my choice, what I gave back to God. Even the ability to trust in Jesus is itself a gift of God which totally blew up my perspective. It meant that everything in my life, every good, everything, every gift was, was, was a gift. 
Everything I tasted that was sweet to my, to my buds. Right? Everything of beauty that was a delight to behold. All of it. A gift of God. Every, every, every bit of strength that I had to take a test in college, I remember thinking, man, this is all a gift from God. All of it. Which is wonderful. It, it's humbling at first, right? So that no one can boast. Because I can't take anything to my credit. But it's also liberating, knowing that no matter what I do, as Mark shared, God still loves me. And it frees me from comparing myself to other people because all the good in them, all the good in you is Jesus. And all the good in me is Jesus. So it's all Jesus. It's all grace, which totally has changed my perspective on life, as it did Mark's. So we read the Bible to see. Fifthly, we read the Bible to endure. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. This is kind of a strange verse because it doesn't actually mention God's word, does it? And commentators in the Psalms think that David is using what's called a metonymy. A metonymy is, is, um, is substituting an attribute for the thing met. I'll give you an example. If you were to say the crown, the crown made this decision, or the crown decided to have another baby, what do we really mean? We mean the queen, the royal family, the princess, that's what we mean. We're using an attribute or a part of who they are, that crown, to describe the people. Or you say the suits to refer to business executives. It's that kind of idea. And so what's happening here is the fear of God was synonymous with the word of God. That, that to hear the word of God was to revere God, was to, 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 to fear him, to, to be in awe of him. So that's what's happening here. Uh, it endures forever, the word of God, just as those who... Trust and obey it will endure forever. And to see a real-life example of this, I want to invite for my friend Emily Del Risco, who has read something in the Bible that has helped to produce in her endurance for life. Thanks, Emily. Um, these verses that I wanted to share have been some of my favorites for a long time, and it's just really um, cool to me to see how God has used those in my life to help me endure some some painful times. So it comes from Jeremiah 29, 11 to 13, and it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And God has really used these verses in my life to help me endure. Thanks, Emily. And these verses do encourage us to endure, um, especially recognizing God has a plan for us, a future for us, a hope for us. When we remember, again, study rule number one, context, context, context. When we read up and we read down, the context and, and when this is being written. So if you read up a little bit in Jeremiah 29, you see in verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to priests, to prophets, to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So what had happened was God warned his people that if you continue to be unfaithful to me and to my covenant, you're going to be deported. Someone's going to take you out of your land, out of your home, and you'll live somewhere else for a long period of time. And that was Nebuchadnezzar. God fulfilled this plan. He took people from their home into captivity, into Babylon. So this promise is meant for people who are held captive, especially because of their own sin, but also just for sorrow too, I think. It's not a promise for your dream company necessarily or to grow a hedge fund into millions of dollars. Some people take that this way. Oh, God's got a plan for me. I know it's going to be big. And I'm going to be super successful and all this. It's, this, is, this is a verse as we read it in context for people who are suffering, for people who are in captivity. So, and then we also realize then 
It's a promise for people who are willing to wait on God. Look at verse 10. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise. Seven years, that means at least two generations would pass before God brought that plan together. As we know, as we learn, the best things come to those who wait. And that can help us endure. So not only do these words mean a lot, as we study them in context, they take on a richer meaning to help us endure in life. And finally, read the Bible for change. Verse 9 says, The rules of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. The rules of the Lord Lord are true, righteous altogether. Now, we are made righteous, we're told in the New Testament, we're made right with God by trusting Jesus, the only one who ever lived rightly and died on our behalf. And that righteousness for those who trust Jesus spreads all together in our behavior as we, are, as we read and are shaped by the word of God. All together, this righteousness comes forward from us. In other words, we begin to change. To see that the change that the word of God can produce in our life, I want to welcome my friend Neil Montgomery for, who has been changed by the words that he is going to read for us. Thanks, Neil, for doing that. Good morning. Um, so some verses that's been pretty significant for me uh, in my life, and um, was 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor reviles, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Um, I think one of the things when I read this, these verses probably about 11, 11 years ago for the first time sitting in my dorm room at the, at the university, um, it was just like a veil was lifted from my eyes and, and for the first time I could actually see myself the way that I really am, you know, like really broken, really lost. Um, and then also with that could actually, um, like that light bulb moment of realizing my only saving grace, the only person that can save me um, is Jesus. Awesome. And when you first read these words, I think Neil can attest to this, it sounds more like bad news than good, right? It's rather harsh. In fact, Neil told me that uh, prior to hearing these words, uh, your roommate, University of Neil, right, I was going to share these verses with you, these very verses, which is amazing. But also he didn't share them with you because they sounded too harsh, <laughs> right? You hear, uh, you know, sexually immoral, idolaters, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, Neil, this applies to you. That's harsh, right? But that's when it helps to study the Bible, to do a little studying. And I mentioned it helps sometimes you're studying the Bible to ask a reporter's questions. Who, what, when, where? And have a resource or two that can help you answer those questions. For example, we have an ESV student Bible on the back which is wonderful for helping to answer those kinds of questions, like who is this audience? Or a little handbook, even smaller, the books of the Bible made easy. And I opened the books of the Bible made easy and turned to 1 Corinthians. It tells me a little bit about the people to whom Paul's writing in Corinth. It says this in this little handbook. Corinth was famous for paganism and immorality. The term Corinthizomai, there we go, Corinthizomai, means to act like a Corinthian. It was synonymous with debauchery and prostitution. Just that just a little tiny little note here. Why does that help us? Because it helps us see that for some people who are living their life their own way, their hearts are hardened, God needs to use strong words to soften a hard heart. 
One of my favorite novelists, uh, a, a Southern Catholic Christian writer named Flannery O'Connor used to say that when you can assume your audience does not hold the same beliefs at you, as you, you can make your vision apparent by shock. To the hard of hearing, you shout. To the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. And I think that's what's happening in many respects here. God knows Paul is speaking to many in with a hard heart or attempted to go back to a lifestyle of self-indulgence. And he loves us enough to speak startling words into our life to pierce our hearts and startle us towards change, awaken us towards change. So it's not so harsh. It's more understandable when you begin to study God's word and recognize, oh, God needs sometimes to speak hard words to soften this hard heart, like he did with the Corinthians. The most helpful way, guys, I can equip you, though, to get all the good contained in the Bible is to point you to Jesus. John's gospel tells us that Jesus is the word. He is the translation of God in heaven. God whom we otherwise can't know, who's inscrutable, who's mysterious, Jesus is his translation. Jesus makes sense of who God is so we can read him. We can, in a sense, read him, understand him, and know him forever. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning eager, and I hope eager, I hope wanting to get to know your word more, study it, meditate on it. We, we don't want to miss out on all the good that you want to produce in us. You have made us good. You have made us right with you through your living word, Jesus Christ. And we want then now to be molded. We want to be changed. We want, we want life. We want wisdom. We want joy. We want sight by studying and meditating on your word. So grant us the discipline, Lord, to make a daily plan and to work that plan. And give us your Holy Spirit to, to see, fill us with your Holy Spirit to see and receive all the good you have for us through your word. Help us get started this week. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.